I am Walter White, and I'm a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Reading. My guest today is Daniel C. Dennett. I'm a writer's professor at Tufts University and one of the most influential philosophers and cognitive scientists of his generation. He has written several highly influential and acclaimed monographs, such as Consciousness Explained, Freedom Evolves, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, and Breaking the Spell. He has also won notoriety for being one of the four horsemen of new atheism, along with Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris. Today I will talk to Dennett about his recent memoir, I've Been Thinking. His views on consciousness, free will, religion, the importance of evolution, as well as philosophy itself. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I have. All right, welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure to have you as the first guest on my podcast. Good to be here. And let's dive right in. You wrote a terrific book titled I've Been Thinking, a memoir recounting much of your life, your intellectual journey, views on consciousness, free will, evolution, God, and philosophy. You also provide people with advice for how they can become better thinker. So let's start with an easy question right here. When and why did you decide to write your memoir? Well, I guess I've been telling stories all my life and uh, seemingly uh, often to good effect. It's often been observed that you ask me a question, I may respond with a story. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, yeah, I've got quite a lot of good stories. And also, I think I wanted to show young would-be philosophers and some of the pitfalls and some of the uh, opportunities that philosophy offers if you do it, well, if you do it my way, which I recommend, <laughs> and uh, if you don't do it some of the old-fashioned ways. Uh, I can't remember exactly when I got it in my head to do it. I guess after From Bacteria to Bach came, uh, uh, came out, I, I thought, well, maybe it's time to make a list of, the, of what I'd put in such a book. And uh, I got some encouragements from some friends and family members and other philosophers. So I went ahead. Oh, very nice. Yeah. One paragraph I liked in your book a lot is where you talked about how hard it was actually for you to get published initially in philosophy journals, which <laughs> might be surprising to some, right? So here in 1965, you received your default from Oxford, but you said many of your peers thought that your writing didn't even qualify as philosophy, right? And now you're one of the most influential philosophers of your generation. Um, so it would be interesting to hear from you what you think philosophy is, as well as perhaps what you think its goal should be. I think whenever you don't know whether you're asking the right questions, you're doing philosophy. <laughs> and that's, that's in any field. That, that is, if you've got a perfectly good question you know how to answer and you're doing physics or chemistry or biology or history, that's not philosophy. But if you suddenly wonder, am, am I wasting my time on this? Are there better questions to be asking? Then you're doing philosophy, and the thing about philosophy is there's no, there's no rules. There are no rules. Lots of philosophers want to introduce rules, 
and some of them are mm, pretty good and pretty <laughs> obvious like don't contradict yourself and, and uh, make sure that you uh, represent the alternative views fairly and accurately don't waste your time uh, uh, shooting at the trivial mistakes around the borders go for the go for the go for the jugular go for the go for the big idea uh so i think philosophy is it's not an exact science it's not mathematics it's not science it's well it's it's what uh uh, uh two people itai and 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 uh um forgotten his name now, uh, Lurcher, uh, uh, called night science. It's what you do in the bar <laughs> after the lab is closed down, what you talk about, and uh, the hypotheses and conjectures and hunches that you explore uh, when the, when the uh, tape recorder is turned off. Um, when I was spending a lot of time at the AI lab at MIT on the uh, top floor of Tech Square in Cambridge, Mass, uh, the top floor, there was a room called the Playroom. And mm -hmm. it had bag chairs and some games to play. But that's where the that's where the serious thinking got done was in the Playroom. And I thought, yeah, right. There should be a Playroom. In every in every field, and that's where the philosophy happens. It's a, uh, uh, and it should be a little bit too, like like uh, like Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> um, uh, people should be allowed to make outrageous mistakes uh, without worrying about being uh, teased and hounded and blamed and scolded and branded. Uh, check it out. Hmm. It works. That's that's what philosophy is. I think that's very nice. Uh, in the beginning of your book, you also introduce uh, a game to make this point more clearly. Now, I myself have played chess in my youth. I went to tournaments, played in local leagues and so forth. And there you introduce uh, what you call chmess as a variation of chess where the king can move two squares into any direction rather than just one. Why did you invent this game? Well, I wanted an example of something that was difficult, intellectually challenging, and trivial. <laughs> and a sort of an intellectual jungle gym on which you could exercise, but that uh, wouldn't be of any great importance. So think of all the people you, you as a serious chess player know that many many people many brilliant people have devoted their lives to proving things about chess exploring all the possibilities and uh, proving things and then disproving other things uh, so those are the those are the truths of chess well I invented a game which I've never played, never <laughs> want to play. I don't know if anybody's ever played it. I don't care. It, it's simply a variant on chess that, as far as I know, is not worth thinking about. But there are 
infinitely many truths of Schmess. And it would be hard work to prove them. Hmm. And people might even make names for themselves by proving truths of Schmess. So what? What's it good for? For <laughs> nothing. Um, uh, it was my way of illustrating uh, one of my favorite uh, obiter dicta of uh, 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 Donald Hebb, the great uh, uh, Canadian psychologist. If it isn't worth doing, it isn't worth doing well. I think that's and, very uh, nice way. And I think uh, that's that's a that's a motto that that should be treated with care, because we sometimes don't know whether something's worth doing until we try it and get very good at it. Hmm. Then we may discover it wasn't worth doing. Okay, well we've we we've learned something important. It's not worth doing. Uh, uh, so. I'm not calling on a relevance or importance czar or committee to rule which activities aren't worth doing. Take your chances, blurt it out, get out there. But just remember that a lot of things aren't doing worth doing well. And philosophy is a field in which uh, because of the insecurity of philosophers, if a professor or an esteemed colleague expresses admiration or respect or even interest in something you do, this can have a disproportionate effect on you and you and you're pretty soon you're sucked into doing that because you've been praised and patted on the head and listened <laughs> to for doing it. But you got to worry about that because maybe you you and your little coterie of uh, nitpickers are wasting your time on a, on an artifactual puzzle. That's just one of my warnings to young young philosophers: is try not to get sucked into uh, make work. There's a lot of make work in philosophy. Yeah, when I was perhaps 12 uh, and playing chess, I remember how we often would change the rules to off the game. It was quite interesting, at least. We would explore those games, change the rules again. But I think ultimately we decided that none of those alternatives uh, were really that interesting, perhaps, compared to the main game. Did you ever play Ultima? Um, I don't think so, no. That, I, I can't remember... Uh, all the rules, but I remember they they changed the powers of the pieces. Like there was the dread immobilizer. The dread immobilizer, um, if it got next to an opponent's piece, it immobilized it. It couldn't move. <laughs> and there was the withdrawer that with that captured by moving next to a piece and on the very next move moving away, and that captured the piece. Uh, and they had a number of different rules like that. It was uh, mildly fun. It's very hard to mm. cleanse your mind of the traditional roles, of course. So it was a sort of uh, bizarre exercise of imagination. Well, it was semi-fun for a few days. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess some variations of chess are played 
more or less competitively. It's like tandem chess where you have a team partner and whatever piece uh, your team partner takes from the opponent, you can place it onto your board as to your own piece. I like yeah. that a lot. Um, Bobby Fischer's uh, variants of chess, of course, might be seen as a good um, variant perhaps of chess where the initial positions of all the uh, figures behind the pawns are more or less randomized because yeah, he I, hated... I thought that was a very interesting idea yeah because it it, it it sort of turned the it turned the game into much less a, a game of learning lots of uh of uh road openings and uh, mm. you have to rely more on general chess principles than on Book learning, yeah. That's right. Bobby Fischer hated it when he had opponents that would just study the moves until perhaps 30 turns later, whereas he was more of an instinctual player, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but perhaps it's interesting then to ask, given how philosophy has changed, I mean, in your book you describe how in Oxford at this time, ordinary language philosophy was really the non-plus-ultra. But now a kind of scientific style of doing philosophy in the way you are doing it has become much more popular. Then again, for many young philosophers that try to engage in this work, they might also struggle getting their work published, right? The work that really tries to integrate insights from different disciplines and then getting that into the mainstream journals. So it would be interesting to hear your views on that. Well, we've made a lot of progress. Um, I think one of the things that I'm actually proudest of is that today there are literally dozens of very good young philosophers, younger than I am, I'm sure, who, who know much more neuroscience, much more cognitive science, much more computer science, much more evolutionary biology than I do. <laughs> And they've really they've they've been in the labs they've they've done, performed experiments and that's the next generation that's carrying on some of the trends that I helped start and I'm very very happy to see that and they are getting published uh, but uh. uh it's still an uphill battle, and and of course there are many people in philosophy, traditional analytic philosophy or continental philosophy or any other kind of philosophy you want to call it. There there are still people that uh, uh, look down on that or 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 intimidated mm -hmm. by it. Uh, uh, I think one of the more sobering moments in my career was when I gave a talk uh, at a graduate philosophy conference organized by graduate students in philosophy. This was at Brown University some years ago. Actually, that's where that's where I uh, in, invented Schmess <laughs> in response to that. But over drinks, they were getting nice and relaxed. I was their guest keynote speaker. And several of them said, oh, they went into philosophy because you didn't have to know anything. And that appalled me. Mm. 
But I remember it from Oxford too, when I was a graduate student. And there were lots of very clever chaps. They were almost all chaps. They were clever as a devil, very fast, very good with counterexamples. And they didn't know a darn thing. Uh, and they didn't think they had to. They could just live by their wits and and uh, and know their Wittgenstein and their Austin and their Ryle and their Russell. And that was about it. And I thought, those are, well, they're wasted lives. They're wasted lives. People uh, getting very good at something that doesn't really need doing. Hmm. Yeah, you have a, a really nice quote. I think this will be the only one I read out here where you describe your own way of doing philosophy. I'm a pack rat, a magpie, to slices of what strike me as the most exciting or thought-provoking tidbits and leaving the rest of the interpretation to the scholars. I think I've learned a lot from Hustle, but some distinguished Hustle scholars might think my reading is irreparably ill-informed. I don't care. I turned to the Hustle to figure out how the mind works and got some valuable help from that reading. If Hustle himself would be aghast at my construal, too bad for Hustle. I am happy to give credit to him, but if her salients want to reject my gift, they are welcome to do so. Yeah, um, that does express my attitude towards towards my approach to the history of philosophy. I am I have respect for those philosophers who do, for good reason, decide to become experts on Kant or Husserl or 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 Frege or Plato or Aristotle uh, uh, and that's that's valuable work and one one of the things that helps to undo is one of the I think one of the paradoxes of teaching philosophy and that is you got to start somewhere so you start with the greats, but when you start with the greats, your young students don't know enough to appreciate how great the greats are, and they they get um, watered down, oversimplified, caricatured versions of Plato and Aristotle and Hume mm. and everybody else, and then they think they know it, and then they never go back. And so time and again in my later years, I've gone back to a classic text and discovered, to, to my embarrassment, how little I appreciated of the real depths of that, of that philosopher. So it's, it's the historians, it's the scholars who do devote themselves to particular figures who, who keep us honest. And, and that's very important. It's, it's perhaps not as uh, as glamorous or exciting a philosophical role, but it's very important. In the same way that in the sciences, most of the science, most of the experimental science that is done is not, you know, Nobel winning innovative stuff. It's It's keeping the field honest, filling in the blanks, correcting errors, checking, replicating experiments, and and this work is all good, honest work. 
it needs to be done and it the the uh, the strength of intellectual endeavor depends on those good citizens who do that work and do it well and do it with integrity and uh my my hat is off to them uh and i sometimes blush when i think that i've uh been sort of parasitic on their efforts because <laughs> i i go in with my smorgasbord approach and take a little of this and a little of that and a little of that and come up with something that strikes me as a, a new wrinkle uh which is that's what i do best uh so uh uh, but I, I, I'm fully appreciative of the uh, uh, the efforts of the scholars who who really dig down into the into the time and the era and the context and the minutia in the works of others. Mm. Yeah, I guess one thinker that might have influenced you, at least outside of philosophy, more than anyone else, has been Darwin, right? Um, yeah. So I'm wondering. When did you first read The Origin of Species? And did it already dawn on you back then that this would change all your thinking about philosophy? I didn't read Origin of Species until... Well, let's see. I think I... I don't think I had actually read The Origin of Species when I read Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. Mm. I think it was after that that I went back and 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 did a proper read of uh, of, of Darwin. Yeah. Um, and and there are still you know some of Darwin's great books that I've only skimmed. Uh, but but I realized years before that that evolution was the key. That was one of the main themes in my dissertation in Oxford. But how little I knew of evolutionary biology is <laughs> embarrassing. Um, but I got I got the main idea. I got the main idea, which is all learning is redesigned based on the design you have already. It's a ratchet, and it's all a matter of trial and error. It's all a matter of generate and test. And generate and test has been the algorithm of innovation for billions of years. And all we've done over the millennia, but not millions of years of science and, and uh, human inquiry is build better, faster ways of doing generate and test using our thinking tools. Mm. The thinking tools that we invented using generate and test. Well, often without realizing we were doing it. So the blind, purposeless generate and test of natural selection gradually turns into the deliberate, reflective intentional generate and test of most of the methods in the sciences. And now we're even learning how to re-harness 
natural selection itself, blind natural selection to do further design enhancement and improvement in uh, things like LLMs and uh, artificial life and genetic algorithms. So uh, we're coming back full circle and we're letting evolution do a lot of the heavy lifting for us in science these days. Yeah, one uh, question I wrote down um, was related to, obviously you've been one of the pioneers in philosophy and trying to understand AI and accompany its development. But then we had philosophers like Hubert Dreyfus, who argued, oh, we could never have an AI that even beats competent chess players, right? And I think that was actually a commonly held view, not only among him, but many other philosophers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Bert Dreyfus uh, was a, a very good philosopher. Uh, and, and Bert and I got along very well. Uh, we we had some over the years we had a disagreements, including on you know national news television. But I always appreciated that, although I thought he was wrong, I thought he was making a, a sort of classic philosophical mistake. He was um, inflating his claims. If he'd just been a little bit more modest, if he if he had said that. AI is much harder than you think. He'd have been right. And he'd have been right for the reasons he gave. But he said, it's just flat impossible. And that's wrong. Mm. And uh, philosophers have a uh, attraction, a fatal attraction for absolutes. Something is flat impossible, inconceivable, just not possible. And very often, that's... Uh, mistaking a failure of imagination for an insight into necessity. And that's one of the chief foibles of philosophy, I think. And so we should always sort of take a deep breath and say, well, instead of trying to prove it's flat and possible, let's just make sure we understand how complicated and difficult it is. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps here it's worth talking about your theory of consciousness, where Many philosophers, think of Thomas Nagel perhaps, really insist that if we introspect into our own minds, we're presented with certainties. This is how the mind works. And perhaps this could be described as your life's work to argue against this kind of exactly. assumption. Yeah, right? yeah. and uh, uh, Tom has been a wonderful, loyal opposition all these years. I mean, I've known, I've known Tom since he was a graduate student at Harvard, and I was an undergrad. And uh, I gave the response to his back paper uh, at the Chapel Hill Colloquium before it was published. Uh, so, so Tom Nagel and I have been have been sparring on these issues for for decades for for 50 years for more <laughs> than 50 years. Um, and uh, uh, I think, I think he's a wonderful philosopher, wonderfully usefully wrong, but thank goodness for his uh, uh, persistence, his uh, inventiveness, his clear clarity, uh, 
uh, I love uh, talking with Tom about what I think he's wrong about. <laughs> mm. And we've done that both in public and private. I was I was very upset with his uh, being taken in by uh, a, a creationist book a number of years ago. Mm. And privately, I I sort of privately I scolded him. I said, Tom, Tom, this is this this is a big mistake. You should you should not you've you've had the wool pulled over your eyes. Right. He did become somewhat of a hero of the creationist crowd at yes, this time. Yes, and and uh, that was a lapse that all too understandable uh, given his general mindset but he 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 really blundered on that one i think mm. yeah you do praise him though also when he wrote his paper on the absurd perhaps you could go into this there's a nice anecdote in your book on that yeah um one year at the APA meeting, the Eastern Division meeting, Tom gave a talk. You can read it. It's it's published. It's on the absurd. And he had asked his advisor at Harvard to be the respondent. And that was a legendary philosopher who published almost nothing named Rogers Albritton. And I was there. the 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 room was packed. I remember the, mm. the the session. Everybody showed up, and Tom gave his talk, which is a downer. It's a it's a it's a it's a rather bleak paper. And then Rogers, who was also my advisor, so so Rogers Albritton had been my undergraduate advisor and had been uh, Tom's graduate advisor. Uh, and Rogers gave a talk which was as wise and humane and understanding as I think any talk I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all sat there, I think, just wrapped, listening to it. And it starts with uh, Roger said, has a little example, he says, you're sitting at home, you're reading a book, listening to a record and a phone rings, and it's an acquaintance, a sort of friend who, who has a problem uh, uh, and, uh, and is, you know, thinking of suicide. And you stop what you're doing and you, and you deal with them. You, you, you try and, and then you ask yourself, well, why do I do that? Why do I bother? Why is this important? And that was, that was the uh, springboard on which he launched his paper. And a few years later, I had a very, very smart, wonderful undergraduate student who came to me and said in a challenging way, Professor Dennett, I'm thinking of killing myself and I want you to tell me why I shouldn't. And since she was so smart, I, I took this very seriously. And I had an idea. I said, well, You've got to make me one promise, and then we'll talk as much as you want. You have to read Tom Nagel's piece, The Absurd, and then you have to read Rogers Albritton's response to that, which he'd read, you know, the way we read our papers in those days. And uh, she promised, 
So uh, Rogers had moved from Harvard to UCLA and I called him up out of the blue <laughs> and said, Rogers, this is Dan Dennett. And I've got this student who thinks she should kill herself. And I want you to send me right away a copy of your response to Nagel. And he said, oh my God, Dan, my, on my drive west, my car was stolen and I got my car back, but the one copy of that paper was in the papers and that's gone, it's lost. I don't have any copy. Back, we didn't have computers back then. We had carbon copies. <laughs> uh, and I said, oh, oh man, that's, you're supposed to be the antidote <laughs> uh, to Nagel as you were on that wonderful night. And he was about to hang up and he said, wait, wait Dan, wait Dan. Uh, let's, let's see if we can reconstruct it. And we spent, I don't know, 45 minutes, maybe an hour on the phone. Uh, uh, and that was back in the days when long distance calls cost significantly. Right. <laughs> but um, uh, we did a pretty good job of, of, of reconstructing uh, the paper, though I have to say I've lost my notes from that now. But in any case, I met with her, the, my student, and we talked it through. And as far as I know, she's alive to this day. I sure hope so. Um, uh, and then I ran into Rogers at uh, a cocktail party at the Eastern Division of the APA meeting. <laughs> And I said, uh, I just came up to him. I said, "No, I really want to thank you for, 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 for spending all that time and, and my and my student. I I think it really did help. You you rose the occasion. Mm. And his face fell. He said, "Oh my God, it was you. You were, you were the one that was thinking of suicide. That never even occurred to me." <laughs> And it should have. I said, no, no, you were right, Rogers. I really, I mean, I really did have a student. It wasn't me. Mm. But thank you. It wasn't my life, you say, <laughs> but I think hers. So it was, that was a unusual, unusual adventure. Uh, Rogers was a, was a lovely man. And uh, uh, probably one of the last examples of a, of a tenured and retrospective philosopher who published almost nothing. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that wouldn't happen nowadays anymore. But I don't think so. Yeah. yeah, Albert Camus, of course, said something like, um, the only really serious problem of philosophy is the problem of suicide. Right? Yeah. Perhaps we don't really see that in the animal kingdom with some exceptions. But when you became a, one of the famous uh, horsemen of atheism, perhaps this was also one of the questions you wrestled with. That it wasn't so much about convincing people that the arguments for the existence of God didn't work, but rather providing them with meaning, an alternative source. I think what has become more and more persuasive to me, to say obvious, is uh, too strong, I'll just say persuasive, is Some people seem to be captivated by what you might call the trickle-down theory of importance. If God doesn't exist, 
to give us importance, then nothing's important. Hmm. God doesn't exist, then life is meaningless. Whereas Darwin shows that, no, there's also a bubble-up theory of importance. Nothing was important until we bubbled up to make things important. Important to whom? To us. Who else? And why shouldn't that matter? Why should it matter whether it's important to this imaginary God that is the creation of everything? The, the, the universe that we are discovering, thanks to science and all the related inquiries, is unbelievably wonderful. Mm -hmm. ravishing delights and beauties and ingenuities whether you're talking about the ribosome this amazing little machine that evolved over millions or billions of years and that makes life possible or whether you're talking about uh, redwood trees or the tides mm -hmm. or the planet or you, you, or art, or music, or philosophy, or mathematics, all this wonderful, wonderful stuff. And we have so many things to inspire us, to comfort us, to love. Why do we need a higher power to endorse that. We endorse it. And that should that should be enough. Yeah. One thing I was wondering, so in your memoir, you almost seem to lament a bit the fact that it took you so long to write Breaking the Spell and then it took you out of your core research on consciousness. Would well, you say that you regret it all having gone into this literature? No, I don't regret it, but, but I, it was not a labor of love. Hmm. It was, it was a, a labor of obligation. I, I got worried about growing little themes and threads of, of uh, uh, theocracy. And uh, uh, it seemed to me it was getting out of hand in the United States hmm. and elsewhere. I was worried about the rise of religious extremism and uh, thought that we, who I think know better, were, were being too diplomatic and keeping our lips buttoned and just hmm. holding on. And I thought it was important to articulate the vision that I had and to show people that this was wonderful. And I didn't want to write a book disproving God's existence. That's been done a hundred different Many ways. Times, yeah. But I did want to write a book showing why religion exists. What? Why does it exist? It's That's a very good question. And especially if you you don't assume 
Well, it exists because God made us believe in it. Now, set that answer aside. We want to see if there's a neutral answer to why mm -hmm. religions exist. And after all, everybody's, I think, an atheist about Zeus and Poseidon and Mars and Ares and and uh, Thor. Uh, we're all atheists about those gods, Zoroaster. Uh, uh, don't exempt any of the imaginary playmates uh, of religion. But now we want to know, why does it have such a hold on us? How did This is a, 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 not just an interesting question. It's complicated and it's important. If we screw up, if we don't understand why religion has the tremendous emotional hold on many people that it does, we'll do we'll make big mistakes making mm -hmm. them right now. Uh, this is a very uh, perilous period in world history, I think. So I wanted to show what a naturalistic theory of the evolution of religion would look like. And it also was useful in, in uh, providing wonderful examples of cultural evolution, mimetic evolution, which I think is because finally people are beginning to realize, yeah, yeah, mimetic evolution is a real thing. And it really does play a very important role. And a lot of genetic evolution is actually dependent on and the response to mimetic evolution. Uh, we have famous cases like uh, uh, lactose intolerance in, mm. in human beings, which owes its existence to dairy farming, which is not a genetic feature. <laughs> it's a cultural feature that evolved. It's a, it's a cultural practice on which natural selection has been operating uh, genetically for millennia, but not more than millennia. So, uh, but in order to do the job right, I had to pour all my resources for a few years into just reading what other people had done on it, educating myself. I hadn't paid any attention to this hmm. literature. And quite frankly, it was a, a only uh, occasionally rewarding scholarly effort. I think an awful lot of bad, second-rate thinking has been perpetrated on this topic, and sorting the good from the bad is is a is a Herculean labor, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, which uh, was in itself depressing. Hmm. Uh, uh, I'm. Uh, I did it. I'm glad I did it. I think it made a difference. I'm proud of the role I've played as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. Uh, but it was not. It was not a, the way, like the rest of my career. It wasn't a joy <laughs> it was it was a duty 
Are you optimistic at all about the future? After all, at the moment, we have a lot of, say, religious conflicts, abortion being prohibited in many parts of the U.S. Well, what I what I wrote in in Breaking the Spell towards the end was, I think, as it were, we're winning. I think the the number of people who have escaped the uh, the opium of religion uh, is growing. The percentage of people who have no religion at all is growing. But we have to recognize that that means there are a lot of people that are going to be really hurt, really hard, really bad. Mm. That, And I... I'm not just paying lip service to their anguish. In fact, in breaking the spell, I, I, I described. I tried to get people to see what it would be like. And I said, imagine that space aliens came to us in the United States, and uh, they didn't come to conquer us. They came to educate us. To learn about us, to live in our in our world, but they had all sorts of things that they liked to do, and our young people just flocked to them, and our young people stopped playing music and stopped playing football and baseball and basketball and uh, uh, abandoned art. They abandoned poetry. They abandoned most of. <laughs> human culture because they found this alien culture more attractive to them. Think of what a calamity we would see that <laughs> we see that it would break our hearts to see this. We wouldn't want to see those traditions, those hallowed traditions. There's no religion there, just hallowed traditions. We wouldn't want to see all of those pastimes and rituals and thrills and joys and the art museums and the concerts we want to we wouldn't want to see all that just evaporate well that's how people feel for instance in the islamic world when they see lots of their traditions just evaporating in front of their eyes they see their children and I have to say, they're just going to have to live through that pain because we're not, we're not going to countenance that they treat their young women, their girls, as second-class citizens, even though that's their tradition. We're, we're, we are going to do what we can gently to encourage the wilder strains of religious belief and practice to reform themselves. It's a hard job. We should do it with all the honesty and diplomacy that we can muster. We shouldn't 
lie to them. But there's a certain false tolerance that I think is deeply dangerous. We don't honor all religious traditions. There are some things human sacrifice. No. They, they may have thought it was noble and wonderful back in the days uh, of the Incas. No. Thank goodness it's gone. Slavery's gone. Thank, we're almost gone. Uh, uh, other practices are waning. Homophobia is waning. Um, we can appreciate the confusion and pain of those for whom these are holy traditions and remember that it would be like asking us to give up football and baseball <laughs> and music and rock and roll uh, an example I use in the book I say um, uh, I don't want to live in a world without music hmm. if if scientists prove tomorrow that music is bad for the brain you know we could imagine some you know, whatever you do, don't play music when your children are growing up. I so wouldn't want that to be true. Mm. And and I would feel the strong, strong temptation to this say, no, damn it. I'm not going to live in a world without music. And I don't want anybody to live <laughs> in a world without music. In your memoir, you also talk about music quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have to recognize that some of the traditions that we think ought to go extinct, like human sacrifice and slavery, are as and identified by people as the very point of their existence and we should we should try to sympathize sympathize mm. but not excuse i think that's a very nice way of putting it suppose the new atheist movement has a bit uh, Rumbled at least a bit, one could say, in the last decade, slowly at least. Why do you think that happened? I don't think it's crumbled. I think it's it's done its job. It's awakened the world hmm. to atheism. The the percentage of people who are not going to church is rising. It's the fastest growing uh segment of the population worldwide hmm. worldwide now and uh i said be patient don't we don't we don't have to beat the drum for this hmm. it's happened i think all the pieces are in place we now just calmly sit back give give the give the cake 
time to cook, give the cheese time to ripen. It's be patient, be gentle. It's happening. We don't and and be ready to help put out the fires of anguish. Mm. A couple of days ago, the Pope fired a bishop in America. Good. That's a good sign. <laughs> Congratulate him. Thank him. And let's hope many other things like that happen. Uh, we've got a, there's a lot of fires that we have to put out. There's a lot of people who need consoling. There's a lot of people who should be allowed to be comforted by their delusions until they die, basically harmlessly. So I'm all for uh, keeping a very gentle pressure on, not overdoing it. Because it'll backfire. Hmm. And I guess that can happen often, even in the history of philosophy, where in opposition to one view, the completely radical opposition is defended. Yeah, yeah. It seems like we're often yeah. they're not getting closer to the truth, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think we, we philosophers are constantly uh in danger of being seduced by refutation by caricature. Hmm. And after all, reductio ad absurdum is one of our chief tools. And that means that there's a motive for being less than completely sympathetic in formulating the views of those we think are wrong. And we have to take steps, very deliberate, positive steps, not to caricature the opposition. Yeah, perhaps one example we could discuss is your defense of a compatibilist with a view of free will, right? Yeah. For many members of the public, it would seem, well, if determinism is true, free will couldn't possibly exist, right? And you've been very vehement in your criticism, say, of Libet's experiments that were meant to prove that free will doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, perhaps you could go into more detail here. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to say that one of the uh, scientists who's been involved in that research, uh, Patrick Haggard, is now writing a sort of history of the Libet experiments mm. and, and their effects and why they are so controversial. So I've just recently sort of reviewed my own participation in that. I'm, I'm afraid I had something to do with the uh, uh, sort of bringing to the attention a lot of people live its work. <laughs> uh, I encountered it first in the lamentable book by Carl uh, Popper and Sir John Eccles, mm. uh, uh, The Self and Its Brain. I think perhaps the single worst book on consciousness and free will that's ever been written <laughs> uh, by two very distinguished people but that's golly that's a that's a wretched book <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> and I, having just said I don't want to caricature the opposition, I, that book is, it's just, it's just inexcusably bad. But uh, but that's where where uh, Eccles trots out Livet as the as the proof of dualism. Um, Instead of talking about limit, let me let me talk about um, uh, a more recent scientist who's oh. come out on free will, and that's uh, Robert Sapolsky in his book Determined, and he's a hard determinist. Mm. I'm going to be debating him on on a Zoom call in a few weeks, and I'm really looking forward to it because I think he's a very smart guy and mm. he has good ideas, but he also makes a few. Um, clear mistakes and the one that I'm most eager to uh, demonstrate to him is that he's made the mistake of believing the philosophers who have inflated free will by thinking that it's important that our wills be not just practically mm -hmm. unpredictable but in principle unpredictable, which only indeterminism could provide. But there's there's no good argument for in principle unpredictability. Practical unpredictability, yes. We wanna we want to preserve our options. Game theory tells us we don't want our beliefs and choices and desires and decisions to be an open book. To the other agents out there, because they can, they can just, they can turn us into puppets if we don't keep our own agendas secret. Mm. And that's a very important point. But we don't have to have absolute secrecy. Uh, there's a, 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 a retired phys physicist who calls himself the. Uh, the free will philosopher Robert Doyle, and he's written a lot about this. And he he lives in the Boston area. He sat in on a number of my seminars on free will, and he tried over and over and over again to convince me that determinism, that there was a good reason for wanting indeterminism to be true, for wanting uh, in, uh, uh, quantum physics to come to the rescue and mm. and and make human choice utterly unpredictable so unpredictable as a cherry photo once said that even god couldn't tell whether eve was going to bite the apple um uh and no no we don't need that kind of unpredictable and he kept pressing me and finally i conceded that he was right i could imagine a circumstance where i would want indeterminism, quantum indeterminism, to be true. And that was, if I was playing rock, paper, and scissors with God for high stakes, then I would want indeterminism to be true so that God couldn't read my mind and uh, 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 win in rock, paper, scissors. But uh, of course, that's not a predicament I expect anybody ever to be in. So, mm. And that's the only reason I could ever come up with for why we might want 
perfect unpredictability. So I think Sapolsky's just been taken in by the idea that if we don't have, if determinism is true, then we don't have the right kind of freedom. Well, we have a kind of freedom. Hmm. We have the kind of freedom that comes with autonomy, with being controllers of ourselves. We're not responsible for the good fortune of having evolved to be self-controllers, but we have. And now that we are self-controllers, we're responsible for keeping it that way. It's you, in some regards, you're just lucky that you're a self-controller, but once you're a self-controller, you have a moral responsibility to protect your self-control from all the would-be puppeteers. Mm. That's the heart of free will. That's that's what, and if we look at the law, that's what we find. Yeah, I think And the notary public says, do you sign this of your mm. own free will? That's what the notary public is asking. Are you somebody's puppet or are you acting with autonomy? And you can answer, yes, I'm acting with autonomy. Hmm. Yeah, before I read your work um, on free will, I would have considered myself an incompatibilist. But reading your work, it sort of seems like, why should we take the philosopher's notion of free will that is absolute, can't come in gradations as whatever we should be interested in, right? Okay. If that's the case, how can we even distinguish gradations between someone who's drunk, someone who is in a clear state of mind, a child, an animal? It seems like we need an account of free will that can have these gradations, and whatever that account is, that would be something that's very much in line with evolutionary reasoning. You know, if you if you look at the at the hard the the skeptics about free will. Sam Harris is a good example. Mm. They're always talking about people with brain damage or people who've had terrible, terrible, terrible upbringing, people who are not fully in control. Right. They are not responsible. They don't have free mm. will. But but that doesn't mean that other people don't have free mm. will because uh, uh, Tom, Tom Wolf once said, The word coming out from neuroscience is, uh, don't blame me, I'm wired wrong. Well, what would it be to be wired right? <laughs> And most of us are wired right, right enough. Yeah. Right enough, not perfect, hmm. but right enough to hold ourselves responsible. I guess one move. Be held responsible make. by others. I guess one move one could make is say, all right, let's leave this term free will to those who are interested in it, but we can talk about control. Some people are more in control than others. But of course, that raises the question why we should give up that term to the absolutists, say. Well, yeah, in fact, I've toyed with that. I mean, mm -hmm. I've run into the, the claim that probably most eloquently articulated by Sam Harris that that I'm just changing the subject, that I'm, mm. that I'm, uh, uh, but I don't think I am. I think it's philosophers who change the subject. I think it's the philosophers who inflated free will, who said it's got to be absolute or it's nothing at all. Well, 
where else do we allow this? Um, uh, David Sanford had this lovely argument why there aren't any mammals. Every mammal has a mammal for a mother, right? Well, that means there's an infinity of mammals or there's none. Hmm. Must be that there aren't any because there aren't <laughs> any. Infinity. Yes. So, obviously, mammalhood is something with fuzzy edges, something that grows gradually. And there's no principled way of drawing a hard-edged bright line between the mammals and the non-mammals. We don't need to go looking for the prime mammal, the first mammal that didn't have a mammal for a mother. Forget it. That's that's not that's schmess. <laughs> but then, yeah. if that's true, then don't look for a prime mammal in the area of free will too. The mm. the, the original choice from which all your later choices uh, devolve. Now, the philosophers have looked at that carefully from Sartre to Cain to others, and they all end up positing sort of a prime mammal. You don't need a prime mammal. We need we need to recognize that freedom evolves, as I have hmm. said. Yeah, in a way, it's very nice that you almost get the same sort of underlying structures in the debate of consciousness where maybe you could see the debate about consciousness as really the debate with the most opposition that this concept could come in degrees where the philosophers yeah. can't even conceive of the possibility right yeah. and then my my dissertation i really tried to de develop this idea further if we want to understand animal consciousness we have to think about what you've called hemi demi semi uh, minds, right? Only then can we really understand this gradual evolution of some creatures yeah. being more mind-like. Yeah, I think, excuse me, I'm, I'm going to close the door because somebody's sure. using the vacuum cleaner. And... Yes, I think, in fact, I think, I think the view that consciousness comes in degrees, which is a, an idea that many people just find intolerable, unimaginable. And it's become suddenly, suddenly it's become much more important because mm -hmm. we have the question of whether large language models, whether chat, GPT and the like, could be conscious or a little bit conscious or something. And and you have people like David Chalmers arguing, well, maybe a little bit conscious or in the future they might be. And I think that's uh, politically and socially dangerous distraction. Hmm. Who cares where the line is drawn? The thing is that these LLMs are dangerous and they're competent. And the level of understanding they have is growing. And if you think, well, yeah, but thank goodness they're not conscious yet. Oh, that's just 
failing to appreciate that right and and reptiles aren't mammals yet <laughs> uh, don't don't think that there's this magic cutoff point mm. where boom you got consciousness coming in now it's very easy to think of consciousness as something which divides the universe in half there's the things that are conscious and the things that aren't that's been a theme of uh, Tom Nagel's for instance for more than 50 years uh, but we can think of consciousness as coming in degrees in in the the, the important con concepts of consciousness the thing that make consciousness so it is important but it comes in degrees mm. even in human beings even in human beings um when Joshua Rothman wrote a profile of me in the New Yorker. He ended his profile by saying he was very, very reluctant to, very dubious of my view of consciousness until, and he wrote very movingly about his mother who was dying and was getting dementia. Mm. And he watched her consciousness it wasn't that she was comatose but that she her mind wasn't capable of doing of reflecting of she wasn't able to appreciate or notice or think about or track or follow or imagine things that consciousness can do and he began to realize that the question of whether there was nevertheless some special wonderful property that was still there or wasn't <laughs> by watching it disappear gradually he finally saw the point of my of my theory mm. yeah, perhaps that's also worth pointing out that consciousness doesn't just to have to vary along a single dimension right you could have yeah, exactly. many more Yeah, yeah. So for me, for instance, um, at some point I learned that I am on the aphantasia scale fairly far to sort of the right. So if I close my eyes and try to imagine an apple, I don't have one sort of appearing in front of me, like Photoshop from somewhere where a picture was taken, but more like an abstract idea. And then there's others who have much more rich visual sensual experiences. Um, take the autistic animal welfare scientist um you've talked about her in your book remember the name excuse me uh the animal welfare scientist um i think her name is temple oh, oh. grandin oh yeah temple grandin yes. so yeah, yeah. when she talks about her experiences she doesn't really think in sentences and abstract ideas she thinks much more in terms of images and to me it seemed almost the opposite experience that i have when i think about my past it almost yeah, seems yeah. like more a list of facts but animals yeah. very likely have more the kind of experiences she talks about where they perhaps have a very strong sensory images associated with particular events right 
Yeah, I think I think that's one way of putting it. Aphantasia is a, is a nice uh, example of of what can be studied. I'm I'm very good actually at hmm. at visual imagery. Or I think I, I haven't been officially tested, but I'm uh, and I've tested others. You know, a few philosophers with some examples of my own that I've dressed <laughs> up some questions that they've had a hard time answering. So I know there's questions that I can easily answer. Mm. They have a really hard time answering. Like, um, oh, go to your go to your boyhood bedroom. Cut a hole in the floor. Look through the hole in the floor. What's underneath your boyhood bedroom? What do you see? Mm. The hole. You know, can you answer that one? No. <laughs> yeah. At for least me, not in terms of an image. Uh, yeah. It's for me, it's that's easy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, one philosopher you might have encountered him, Colin Allen. He told me he has the complete absence of any mental imagery. So it's even more radical than in my case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that people have such radical different experiences in their life really goes against this idea that consciousness is this all or nothing property people have right. or not, right? Yes, and I think it, there's colorblindness and mm. black sight and that's right. Uh, Hemi neglect, all these interesting pathologies of consciousness and uh the idea that consciousness is this one super duper thing is <laughs> as bad as the idea that free will is this one super duper thing. Not magic, it's complicated. Yeah. Is in my book, for instance, uh, on animal consciousness, I talk about uh, reptiles and fishes as having these extremely um, complex brain halves that aren't very much integrated compared to say humans or birds where we sometimes have talked about as potential candidates for two streams of experience but it's very yeah. much possible that they could have right two selves in a way almost oh yeah um uh one of my favorite examples actually is the sperm whales mm. they have eyes on the sides of their head and there's there's the left eyed whale and the right eyed whale and uh, Melville in Moby Dick has a passage where he says sometimes he's seen you know pods of sperm whales when they get agitated who seem they seem to be fighting themselves they seem to go into a <laughs> and I said yeah like two oxen in a yoke uh, there's there's Dexter and Sinister Whale there and they're mm. fighting for control and it's possible um Rabbits show something similar. Hmm. Uh, uh, if you uh, uh, put an eye patch over one eye of a rabbit, there's no binocular overlap there, of course, uh, and train that rabbit hmm. something, put the patch on the other eye, and you have basically a naive rabbit. So that's something that bugged me with theories like um, the integrated information theory of consciousness. Why should we care about unity as this fundamental feature of consciousness, right? 
Why does consciousness have to be organized that way? Well, I think unity, I think that's the one thing I like about hmm. I, the, about Tononi's work is that not that he can answer the question, but at least he's got a way of asking the question, are there, is a single sperm whale like two oxen in a yoke? <laughs> or is it like one ox? Yeah. And I think that's an interesting scientific question mm. to which we know the answer. And he's at least suggested a path that could lead to, lead to an answer, but he that that's just the beginning. It's not that's not yet. Yeah. Theory. Well, one one could see why it has become such a popular theory among physicists, computer engineers, AI researchers, because at least in principle we could apply it to non-biological systems. Yeah, in principle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um... Yeah, so do you think you mentioned that AI poses something of a threat to us it would be interesting to go more into that where do you see that threat exactly is it that ai will kill all humans or is it something more subtle than that i think it's more subtle than that i think ai might destroy human trust hmm. and it might uh, um Eric Horwitz, the chief scientist at Microsoft, had a talk where he used the phrase a post-epistemic world. And that chilled me to the bone. <laughs> yes. Uh, if When we don't know what's true and what's false, when we are trapped in a sort of paranoid skepticism about everything, that would be terrible. That would be terrible. Do you have any advice for young philosophers, how they should approach the field now? Should they focus on AI research? Well, they should, everybody should focus mm -hmm. on it to some degree. I think it's a very important issue because it's immediate. We're not talking who cares about the singularity in 100 years or 20 years or 500 years. Right now, it's the dangers are there. And we've created these new artificial memes, meme systems, which can evolve. And that could set off a, an epidemic, a pandemic, mm. which we want to uh, avoid, I think, at all costs. Yeah. So that's it. But there are many other topics. I, I, I think my advice here is uh, the same as it, as it is to my students at Tufts very often. Uh, if you think you have a really good idea, blurt it out, then you have something to fix. <laughs> it may be wrong, but uh, at least you've got something to study, to fix, to criticize, to get help with. 
and always get help from others. Hmm. Yeah, I guess this moves us to our last question. You mentioned in your book often that you really enjoyed teaching, perhaps more so than other philosophers, even for, say, first-year courses. But now as an emeritus professor, last year you retired, perhaps you don't have any classes anymore. Do you have any plans for the next years, for the future? Uh, my calendar is, is as busy as ever. <laughs> I, I've got conferences to attend, talks mm. to give, interviews like this to to give, uh, and uh, even occasional guest lectures and courses. Hmm. So uh, as long as I can keep my marbles relatively intact, I'm going to keep doing it. Oh, that's wonderful. So thanks so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, well, you're welcome. Uh, uh, it's been good talking with you. And uh, you've been, uh, you've asked good questions. <laughs> that's nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Daniel Dennett today. You can find links to his memoir and his research in the links of the show notes. This was the first episode of my podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing. And with that, I wish you a pleasant day.